Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Formatted to Fit Your Screen, the show where two people who have seen a movie have a conversation. I'm your host, Zach Tennant, and this week on the show, I am coming to you from Saskatoon for the first time since our Clerks episode very early on in the run of this show to discuss 1990s Goodfellas, directed by Martin Scorsese, with none other than my dad, Dave Tennant. I am back home for the holiday season, seeing friends and family, so what better time to revisit this movie that is like family to me and my dad. (laughs) My dad's favorite movie, I believe, as we get into in this episode. So this was a fun discussion. I take the wheel a bit more in this one than on normal episodes. There's a lot of me talking, but my dad was a great guest and added a lot to the conversation, so my thanks to him for being on the show. If you're enjoying the show or you are a first-time listener, thank you. Please consider rating, reviewing, subscribing to help out the show. Any of that is greatly appreciated. Come back at the end of the episode and I'll let you know who's joining me next time, but for now, please enjoy 1990s Goodfellas with Dave Tennant. Hey, watch your mother, father, mouth. Don't you tell me what to do, you little piece of shoe. Hey, kiss my aunt, you mother, father. Say <laughs> what? The both of you uh, can grab one on my book, you mother, father, Chinese dentist. You! All right, so we're here today with Dave Tennant. We're here to talk about 1990s Goodfellas, directed by Martin Scorsese, co-written with Nicholas Pileggi, based on the book Wise Guy that he wrote, based on the life and true experiences of the mobster Henry Hill. Dad, thanks for being on the show with me. Thanks for inviting me. This was an episode that's been in the making for a little while here. We were going to do this earlier in the summer, so happy to get to do it at Christmas time. I was happy to rewatch this movie right around the Christmas season, as you did as well. There's Christmas elements, there's some seasonal fun to be had when you're watching this movie, wouldn't you say? I'm not so sure about the Christmas element, but... Uh, And the last time that I watched this movie, uh, before watching it for the show, I watched it in full on a plane uh, with the sound off with no headphones on uh, a year ago. I was listening to music or podcasts, whatever, but I put the movie on just for something to look at and... I'll get to, I'll mention something about that later on as we get into it. But what is your history with this movie? Do you remember the first time that you saw it? Do you remember the theater going experience if you saw it here in town in Saskatoon? I do remember uh, going to it at the theater, uh, the Odeon Theater downtown, with my current wife that doesn't remember it. And I do remember the hype about it when it was new and coming out of it and thinking, wow, that was one hell of a movie. Um, and since then, I've of course watched it, you know, numerous times on and off again. And the one thing for me now that it's become a period piece in itself, you know, that it's almost 25 years old. So it's fun for me to look back as well as it being a period piece that started in the sixties in that movie. It's a part of my history now too. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, uh, came out in 1990s, so it would have been just newly wed for you and mom when the movie came out. Yeah. In September of 1990, this film was released. Did you, at the time that the movie came out, do you know up till that point, were you a fan of Martin Scorsese up till then? And I'll say right now that I say Martin Scorsese. Many people say Scorsese, but if you listen to the Aviator commentary or the Goodfellas commentary for that matter... He himself says it's Scorsese, so for out of respect for the maestro, 
that's how I'll say it on this episode. Were you a fan of his earlier work up until that point? Was he on your radar as a director at all? I honestly don't think that his name would have been the draw to the movie. I think the draw to the movie probably would have been Robert De Niro and just the hype that it was up about it when it came out. And Robert De Niro, for not being the main character in this film and for not having the most screen time, he is the top build and he was a big part of what got this movie made after many years of Martin Scorsese struggling to get movies like The Last Temptation of Christ funded. He working with De Niro again. That's always been up through The Irishman recently, a few years ago. One of the things that helps get his projects finally off the ground and ready to go, that and working with Leonardo DiCaprio. I'd like to ask a bit about the fact that it is a period piece and that it was, at the time that it came out, set in the past and set in the not-so-recent past, living memory for you as someone seeing it 30 years old at the time. Did it feel, when you were seeing it for the first time, was that kind of 70s, 60s, nostalgia in a movie and seeing that recreated was that something that still had a lot of novelty to it this movie was three years or four years before Forrest Gump came out which I think for a lot of boomers is the kind of quintessential looking back at the past nostalgic very optimistic conservative movie and then Goodfellas is a very American film and a very me generation boomer movie in its own way as well but from the crime streets aspect of it did it look authentic to you when you saw it when you were younger did it feel like it really got the period accuracy correct i think it did because i mean all the vehicles and everything the the sets the suits you know that's everything that goes in but it's been constructed you know i mean their backgrounds are constructed for me when I think of those old Jimmy Cagney movies where they're all shot on location and everything that's behind there is the real life scene, you know, that really makes a true period piece to me. But yeah, it was, there's no doubt about it. It was still fresh in your mind. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, he did a good job of it. So uh, this movie opens up something that I found just in the opening scene where the credits start to rush onto the screen. The credits in this movie done by Saul Bass, it might be note to point out that he did a lot of work in the early 60s i think he actually worked on psycho did the opening credits to psycho for alfred hitchcock and he did a lot of poster design as well he did a lot of auto preminger movies like anatomy of a murder he kind of had a recognizable style but then he had been kind of through the 80s and maybe the 70s put out to pasture a little bit and he was quite a bit older at that time and then I think he worked on, he had some other movie just before this one that was a bit of a comeback for him. And then Marty saw that and said, oh, we got to get this guy working. And then he went on to do this movie, The Age of Innocence, Cape Fear, Casino. He went on to do most of the movies that Scorsese made throughout the rest of the 90s. Um but that opening that the credits rush onto the screen, sort of the way that the lines on the highway do, and then immediately, boom, we're just in the car with these guys. They're on the job. They're having an average day at work, and it's you see what it's like for these guys being everyday gangsters. It opens so non-poetically, and I think of the other 
quintessential American gangster movie, The Godfather, which would have been about 20 years old at the time that Goodfellas was coming out, which is good, but it's so grand and operatic and dramatic and flourishy, whereas this movie from the very opening is not... It's got sort of a cheap glamour to it, or it's got parts of it that look fun, but it's so not the fancy frou-frou mafia it's that these guys are henchmen these guys are low-level thugs these guys are the street enforcers really i believe that that is a kind of a mirror of the times though because the good the the godfather it was a an awakening to a lot of Americans about the mob and they had to tell that story and they had to develop the characters and get it to where it was. And in the meantime, Joe Valacci had already spilled. We talk about the Teflon Dawn, like it's everyday news and people were more attuned to what the gangsters were all about. So, I mean, they knew what their rackets were, they knew how they operated, but when you actually see the nuts and bolts of it, that's a, you know, just a continuation of the same explanation, only done visually. What do you think of, because we should note that uh, this year we've lost Ray Liotta, the star of this movie, and we've also lost Paul Sorvino, and we got it's the waning days of 2022 right now, but there, we still could lose more of the Goodfellas cast before the year closes out. What do you think of Ray Liotta's performance in this movie and him as Henry Hill as the main character of this movie? Because I think I appreciate something different about it as I get older, as opposed to just watching it in high school. So I'd be interested to know what you make of him as a performer and him in this movie. I'm not sure how I could rate him as a performer. I think he, after this movie, he kind of typecast himself as stereotypically the gangster or thug role. But I think he... I think he played that role with a certain amount of honesty and, you know, I don't think there's a lot of makeup or there's a lot of coaching on dialogue. I think a lot of it just is organic, mm -hmm. you would say, right? I think he's really good. I think that's something that I notice more watching this movie and as time goes on or the more viewings I have, that it's not the movie about Polly. Polly's there and he's the side character. It's not about De Niro, who's the big movie star in the movie. Henry Hill, this guy who all his life, as far back as he can remember, he wanted to be a gangster. And he is a gangster, but he's not Michael Corleone. He's not the big hotshot, anything like that. He is just a guy who got into it, who didn't have better opportunities who was seduced by the lifestyle and then gets, by the time he's an adult, he's already been institutionalized. He's been to jail already. He's been pinched. And yet he, to watch it as a teenager, he makes it look so fun. And even at the end, when it's all going haywire for him, when his life's completely gone to shit, and he's all messed up on drugs. There's still so much excitement to it and electricity to his performance and it's funny to think that he, in the grand scheme of things, Henry Hill is a interesting historical figure, not really for anything he did in the mafia, but for the fact that this movie exists about him 
and that is similar to the guy from the wolf of wall street who is now sort of a semi-celebrity the guy who leonardo dicaprio played or jake lamotta the boxer who doesn't have any kind of real distinguished boxing career to speak of or he wouldn't be you know remembered by name if not for this movie made about him that's a kind of scorsese trademark to have the biopics about these people who aren't great historical figures but they kind of really represent a good narrative or they represent a good story about downfall and about greed i like that a lot about the henry hill performance well before Henry Hill, there was Joe Valazzi. He spilled the beans. I think Charles Bronson made a movie about him, too, but I might be wrong about that. Well, Charles Bronson, um, I'll, I'll use that as a bit of a sloppy segue there, that uh, Charles Bronson from Once Upon a Time in America, uh, or from Once Upon a Time in the West, a movie that I watched this week that I hadn't seen all the way through before was Once Upon a Time in America, the 1980s Sergio Leone gangster movie that also starred robert de niro and joe pesci and i put that on just for something to watch that i have a used copy that i got from uh, 49 cent video in saskatoon i had never seen that movie all the way through before and that similarly it's got a lot of violence to it but it's got so much sort of pomp and circumstance and Goodfellas is fast-moving, it's kinetic, it's hyper-violent, but it's also it's flashy, it's got the sex appeal stuff in it as well. Um, as with all his movies, it has a good soundtrack that goes along with it. It has an excellent soundtrack, more than a few Rolling Stones songs, again, another trademark of his. Jump into the fire. I think that might be my favorite needle drop in the movie. Do you have a favorite music moment? Um, I think it's probably Jump into the Fire too, because it's just one of those songs that builds up with the excitement of that sp specific scene. That scene, a, a theory that I have on this show that I've talked about sometimes, and some theories that I have about movies in general. It sounds cliche or it sounds too simple to just be true but i think a great movie is when you have one great scene then another great scene and just continues like that until the movie's over because that's a really hard thing to do and it's hard for a movie to have a good tone and a good momentum that continues on and plays out in this movie this isn't a term that i've coined on this show but a term i've heard out there it's a real ass magnet there's a reason that this movie has the life on cable tv that it does that it can eat up an afternoon it's you stumble upon it at any scene it's immediately you're able to be pulled into it and grasped into it and follow it through i remember the first time that i watched this movie in this house and i watched it up in my old bedroom in probably grade nine or something like that i taped it off tv and i watched it and i didn't really like it the first time and i knew that it was your is it your favorite movie is that fair to say certainly right up there in my top five and what else would be in there uh oh jimmy Cagney movie white heat for sure. white heat okay yeah, yeah. two lane blacktop what else are we talking <laughs> i don't know if we're going back to two lane blacktop but there is other movies spinal taps one of the great movies mm -hmm. too right that will never grow old mm -hmm. you know one thing i will say about this movie is that i watched it for the first time digitally mm -hmm. and it was 
so much better to see it digitally than I'd seen it on regular TV. I think I told you that earlier. Mm -hmm. But also, I couldn't help but notice on your one good scene leads to another. Not that I would ever notice this if I wasn't, didn't have a son that did a show like this, but I couldn't believe that it was that one long shot when they first go to the restaurant. Mm -hmm. When it goes all the way from out in the street in the car right to the restaurant, right into when Bobby Vinton starts singing, and it's all one long, continuous, smooth shot. Mm -hmm. I think that was amazing. And if I'm not mistaken, it goes into another very, very long shot, continuous shot right after that. That's when Henny Youngman is performing yeah. at the Copacabana. Yeah, that's a very legendary shot. Yeah, that shot, I think that's up there with there's the very long shot in the first Kill Bill movie when she's, uh, well, in the third act of that movie, there's a very long tracking shot. But that one in Goodfellas, and that's with uh, with Be My Baby playing in the background mm -hmm. during that scene, yeah, at the Copa. That, I think, it's hard to watch that when you're young to see that as a teenager and not find that really romanticized and exciting and glamorous i think something i like about this movie and i'll say that i've never seen an episode of the sopranos just by coincidence i'd like to see it at some point but i find that this movie it is so much about the blue collar sort of white trash working class idea of what it means to be rich and what it means to be a big shot and what you do with your money when you're used to having no money and then you're flush with cash, the kind of dumb ways you act with it. And that goes into after the Lufthansa airport heist when they're buying fur coats and that as well. But I love seeing these guys. There's, they're very unclassy. And even when you get the narration from Karen talking about the other mafia wives that they don't look good and their skin's no good and they just kind of dress trashy. That's all. That's the men in this movie as well. That's all of these guys. Well, going back to that same shot, though, Zach, where they're walking through that kitchen, and, I mean, that whole shot, beginning to end, glamorizes this poor schmuck Henry Hill and turns him into a hero when he's walking through that kitchen and the maitre d' and all the chefs, and they're high-fiving, you mm -hmm. know, saying hello to him. You know, that's his low-level stardom, not like the Teflon Don who would walk in the front door with a band playing or something like that. You know, that was the epitome of his... Everybody knew what was going on, but he couldn't broadcast it. Something that I liked about this movie, a few years ago with The Irishman, of course, there was all the talk and all the news and all the semi-controversy that Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci playing the characters in that film at their age at the time of filming they played the characters as much older and they also played the characters as much younger and they were de-aged using digital technology the first time it had been used to that extent for that much of a movie and it was done to sort of mixed reception that it didn't look that good De Niro's face was kind of hard to look at there's a scene where he's beating someone and kicking someone that looks particularly not fluid because you can tell that it's a 70 something year old man doing it and not 
even if you de-age him to give him brown hair, you can tell that it doesn't move like a young man anymore. Whereas opposed to this movie, De Niro walks in basically kind of great already and Ray Liotta in the narration says, no, he was only about 22 at the time, but I could tell. And then, and then there it goes. And then the same goes for Joe Pesci, who at the start of this movie, he's got crow's feet. He was playing a boxing manager 10 years before this movie in Raging Bull. He'd been around forever, but they introduce these guys. They say that they're just young guys and they don't look any different basically throughout the whole movie. But the suspension of disbelief works. It's just enough. When you've seen this movie as many times as you have, when you've seen Henry's life go up and then you see it go down again, what do you think the lessons to be learned from Henry's story are? Do you think that this is a cautionary tale? I think you'd probably see it that way. Um, Maybe a cautionary tale, but I mean, it's the, it's the quintessential rags to riches story the American dream with a slight twist. And then it's the wah, wah, wah moment at the end when he can't get spaghetti sauce, you know, to his liking because he's a nobody again. So, I mean, he runs the gamut, you know, the American dream, celebrity to a point, stardom, fame, money, all that stuff. But does he really get there? No, he ends up, you know. So it is, to me, it's the, the, the real truth probably of the American dream that most people, even if they do fulfill some of their dream, don't have the sustenance that lasts. It doesn't sustain for the rest of their lives. I really appreciate it. And I, I have it paraphrased here, but I took down the line of Henry's that I enjoyed. People who work shitty jobs for bum paychecks and ride the subway to work and worry about bills are dead. It's, easy to see the movie and to think about you know average joe audience member buying a ticket you do get the idea that these guys and the uh, the film is goodfellas and the book it's based off of is wise guy the title was changed because of the tv series wise guys and also there was a brian de palma film in the 80s um but i think wise guy sums the idea of these guys up better than goodfellas sort of does because in wise guys i think it really does sum up at the beginning when they're bribing the cops and the cop says you know i complain but who'd listen and all the times that the understanding between two men between two guys is that they're speaking on a different inside track of how america works and how the rules go and that as long as you know what the rules are and you know how to stand outside of them and how to negotiate being on the other side of that line, it's a whole different America for you and you can prosper and be successful a whole lot easier in that one if you have some business acumen to you. Even if the Italian gangster becomes kind of an outdated stereotype, archetype of the past or something that's a little bit antiquated as it's presented in this movie, I think the idea that there are the wise guys and there's the people haves and have nots or people who are towing the straight line and the people who go on their own path. I think that continues to be something really resonant and something that comes up in the a movie like The Wolf of Wall Street as well about 
a 99% um, Occupy Wall Street sort of take on that same thing of who, you know, the bankers being the gangsters in that sense. From the time you were young to the time that you, to nowadays, what gets you interested to go see a movie? What is it that you look for? What speaks to you in movies as just an average film goer, not anyone who really analyzes stuff too deeply? What gets your excitement? I know you love movies about cars, but that's a, a interest all over for you. I think that, um, you know, by word of mouth is probably the biggest thing that gets me going for a movie or a review of a movie that I hear. But I'm always looking for a storyline that's not total fiction you know that's why i don't like science fiction movies it's all too unbelievable mm -hmm. whereas a movie like this it's not real life but it's a portrayal of real life and it's pretty close you know and the closer it is the better for the most part and i think since then um and when i say then i since this movie goodfellas came out i think that a lot of other movies have gone to way further extremes to document the ordinary things in life that turn into nothing for the average person but can certainly be seen as a art in a story if it's hard to put it like that but mm -hmm. i mean there's lots of different movies nowadays that triumph the hardship of being in america and the triumph of getting out of that hardship or making something happen. But in the end, it's still the rags to riches story. Mm -hmm. and they sometimes happen and they sometimes don't. So Something that I was thinking on this viewing of the movie, for this movie that came out in 1990, that, like I said, it came out four years before... Pulp Fiction, which I think in American film history and just pop culture in general is such a watershed, you know, game-changing movie for the tone that movies had afterwards and the kind of style that became so in vogue for the rest of the 90s and so ripped off by sub-Tarantino, sub-Kevin uh, Williamson kind of screenwriting Kevin Smith in there a little bit as well but this movie feels like a precursor to that of how fast it moves how electric it is with the editing with the freeze frames with the stylistic presentation of it it's so frenzied together and i was about to say this before and then we got onto a different track the first time i watched this movie i didn't really care for it because the intro opening narration that was setting up the start of the movie just kept going and kept going and kept going and i thought that it was gonna at some point settle down and you join the movie and follow it forward but it just kept all feeling like it was building to something new it felt like it was cut like a trailer or something and i didn't quite connect with it or i had a weird reaction to it and then it wasn't until i saw it again and i knew what to expect from it that i could really sit with it and enjoy it it's funny that that kind of you know incomprehensible fast editing style looks like a movie trailer that's so the opposite of what 
you would think anyone would say about Martin Scorsese these days for uh, him being the guy who's only ever in the news when people ask him what he thinks about Marvel movies and he says that he thinks they're not very good and then he gets trashed on for that and people think that he's some stodgy old man who doesn't appreciate modern movie making but this movie is as innovative and as across the board and as messy as can be and i think as well dare i say very influential because i think without goodfellas it would hard for there it would be hard for there to be something like pulp fiction which shares cast members like samuel l jackson who's in goodfellas I think this movie also, you would never have something like Boogie Nights, which is also a movie, a big, long epic about the fun and being seduced by a dangerous lifestyle and how fun and glamorous it is. And then that gets turned on its head as well and becomes a dark cautionary tale. And then another movie that comes up on this show and had an episode in the past, Election, Alexander Payne's Election from the end of the decade, which has also use of multiple narrators and has freeze frames and a lot of narrative devices lifted from this movie. Shawshank Redemption, another one that Frank Darabont, when he was directing Shawshank Redemption, he has the story that he would eat a steak and whiskey dinner and watch Goodfellas once a week every Sunday night as he was making Shawshank Redemption to know, to have a reminder of what he was doing. And that's a movie that's so completely different in so many ways but then there's also still you can see how he would be inspired or how he could be lifting from something like goodfellas well you you'd say about quentin tarantino you know coming along and changing throwing everything on its ear well there's no doubt about it that he certainly upped the violence level i mean it's you know that took the gore Mm -hmm. that put the gore right back in special x if it was still special x then you know in goodfellas it seems like it's not that long ago but the whole story there's no inkling of a cell phone there's you know they're running to pay phones and still telegrams and stuff like that so a lot of it i'm sure there's a little bit of that that he's taken license with too but what are the small scenes because for the listener at home for me and my brother and for our mom in all of my life there's you've never been able to mention something being funny in front of you without being met with yeah funny haha <laughs> to this day happens happens once or twice a day and i think of that as being of course that's one of the quintessential scenes in this movie one of the most memorable but that's not the only one that we quote in this movie we quote keep stirring the sauce we a lot of them i was curious if there's if you had a top two or three the ones that you really prefer well i think every time we cook we try to slice the garlic so thin that it just kind of melts yeah that's a good one not so much quotable moments but i think for the visual moments i love at the end of the movie robert de niro with his big glasses when he's meeting henry at the diner and he's got the big glasses on i love that I love the painting of the dog when they go and they meet Joe Pesci's mom in the movie and have the late night dinner with her. Again, I think it goes back to the one great scene after another that this movie is so... No matter what part of the movie you dip into, there'd be something you didn't want to turn it off and you'd have to stay through and see it. 
How many times do you think you've seen this movie on TV? Could you even begin to quantify oh, that? Oh, I'm sure that if I've ever turned the TV on and it's on, I've at least watched for a few minutes, mm-hmm. if not, depending on where it is. So, um, like I said before, though, to see it again recently, digitally, the picture just jumped out. There was a lot more stuff in the background that you just don't catch. But I guess every time you watch a movie, you catch a little more and... You know, the better the quality, the more you catch. So, Do you have, what are your movie-going memories in Saskatoon? So you said you saw Goodfellas at the Odeon. Where was that located? Downtown. It was right where the, uh, oh, it's the Odeon Event Center. Now. Okay, really the Cora's Event Center in Saskatoon. Yeah. And I do remember, uh, I saw a review, a story, a review, something that tipped me off to Spinal Tap. And my friend Warren and I, he was the only one I could convince to go with me, um, went down to the Roxy Theater. And at that time, they had just turned it into two theaters. And the second theater was, I don't know, 15 seats wide and just long and narrow. And we went there and watched that movie to the early show, 7 o'clock in the evening, to a house with maybe 20 people in it. And we left there just laughing. And the next day, I actually went and bought the album. Mm-hmm. Which you still have to this day. Which I still have to this day. And, um, you know, that was another, that was a sleeper movie in a docudrama. It was kind of a groundbreaking in it style, too, you know. Mm-hmm. I always think that that movie spawned Trailer Park Boys, but I might be wrong. That's an interesting contention. That's... uh I think the listeners are going to enjoy that connection being made. I think that docudrama, if that's what the actual term is, well, docu- mockumentary, mockumentary think, yeah. is the word I'm looking for. Mockumentary is was probably started with that. It's the first time that I can recall it being used as a vehicle. I, I think that had been, for that one, there had been some of that on TV in the earlier 80s and in the 70s. But then in in 1969, there was the movie Take the Money and Run, which was the first Woody Allen directorial movie. But that's a mockumentary about a gangster, kind of small-time hoodlum in and out of jail, criminal guy as well. So that had been done in the late 60s, but then I think Spinal Tap really yeah rejuvenated that and then there was the christopher guest like waiting for guffman and best in show a lot of movies like that later on down the line something in my notes here the movie ends on a funny note that henry hill this new york gangster guy he's been put into witness relocation he's a schmuck like everyone else he's eating his egg noodles and ketchup and he's living in some community where they're building new homes he's out in the sticks in the middle of nowhere i had to notice that it didn't look all that different from the street that karen lives on in the movie that her mother lives on and when they get married and when henry goes and beats the guy up across the street from the mother's house and he walks back over I was watching that from Montreal on my TV, and I was thinking that it looked like Willow Street right outside Mm. here in front of our house. For this to be a New York movie, you do get a lot of New York in the, you know, people on the streets, but it's so much of people in back rooms, people in, you know, 
shitty little diners and back rooms coat rooms and stuff and then when it's at their houses they kind of live out in the suburbs like it seems like these guys are not again they're not the big rich guys they're the working class blue collar gangsters who live on the block with the people who take the subway to work for me you know you say lots of new york scenes and it should look like you know suburb new york or something that's the last thing i think of when i think of goodfellas mm-hmm. is that it's a new york movie you know mm-hmm. to me it could be in la chicago anywhere and even to this when you just mentioned new york i think well yeah you know they rob laguardia but it could be o'hare it could be anywhere and it really doesn't to me play that big a part the location although it's a period piece and they show all that stuff it could be anywhere you know i honestly don't believe that new york is the is the key factor in that movie except i guess it's probably the hub of you know maybe the gangsters but Mm -hmm. i think it speaks to the i think the authenticity that it's told with i think speaks to the fact that it was made by a new yorker who grew up around those guys and who understands that world but the fact that it is new york city that is just kind of there's gangsters there there's gangsters in other cities as well this is just the story set there it isn't really a new york movie and it's not that kind of it's not at all new york in a showy like we watched home alone 2 lost they in don't new york just the, the subway other day. style once in goodfellas and it's not, there's not a lot of, uh, what's the matter you, or, you know, they're not leaning on any big stereotypes to really hammer home that it's New York. It's just a New York that feels lived in, speaks for itself. You see sides of the city and the tri-state area, I'm guessing, that are not, you know, that you don't associate with looking that way. And I think that's the kind of relaxed confidence that only a, only a real New York master could get out. You're probably right. How do you feel about Casino? Is that one that you have the same affinity for? That's one that's very similar to Goodfellas, more similar, I think, than any of his other movies, and came only a couple years afterwards, but different in many ways, different in a lot of ways. Well, Casino, to me, I often have a lot of crossover memories from both movies. There's a lot of similarities, and not just in the characters. But... um Casino's a great movie too, but I it's not Goodfellas. It's and it's it's to a point in that one where the characters are almost rehashed to a point where they're they've become unbelievable in their unbelievable selves, you know? And the characters are so much more developed in Casino where the storyline goes right from the beginning to the end for Sharon Stone and James Woods, who, and I was a big James Woods fan, and when that movie came out, I thought James Woods is the last guy I want to be a fan of anymore because I didn't think he was that good in that movie. But But you love Don Rickles. Yeah, Don Rickles. I mean, and all those uh, other, you know, cameos in that movie. One of the Smothers Brothers. Yeah, there's lots of great scenes in there, and there's lots of bit great memorable moments, but it doesn't have the, it doesn't have the glue that holds it together, you know. It doesn't. It wouldn't keep me. And a matter of fact, I can come out and say it. I've got up in the middle of that movie on TV and walked out of the room or shut it off. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have the drawing power or the staying power that 
Goodfellas has. Well, I'll side with you on that. That is, uh, there's some people who disagree, but I won't be one of them. I like Casino as well, but I think Goodfellas is definitely in a league of its own. I think Goodfellas and Taxi Driver, I think, are the two real high watermarks for Martin Scorsese. And then if I was to throw in ones that I kind of give an extra bump to or ones that I think are underrated, I think Cape Fear and Shutter Island and The King of Comedy are all kind of right up there among his best work. We should give a shout out that it was shot by, I believe the name is Michael Bauhaus. It might be Ballhaus, but a German cinematographer. He's deceased now, but he also shot The Departed uh, about 16 years later. He's done, he did a lot of good work, but yeah, his work, the camera work in Goodfellas is completely stunning from beginning to end. The editing by Thelma Schoonmaker, who this movie lost best editing to Dances with Wolves. And there's a very famous shot where Polly's got his cigar that's two thirds of the way through the movie or it's in the back half of it. And between one shot to another, it's a really jarring difference in the length of his cigar. And if you look out for those sort of things, it's really noticeable. And it was alleged that that might have been, like in the editing community, that that was such a noticeable flub that it hurt the film's chances. And yet a movie that's edited this tight and fast, it's that's the last thing you really think of or the last thing you notice watching this movie. Just before we wrap up, I want to get your story in here too about, because I like to hear about this, when you went to the Planet of the Apes marathon here in Saskatoon. So tell us a bit about that. Oh, uh, when I was a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we they used to, every once in a while, the Capitol Theater, the big theater downtown, it would show the Planet of the Apes movies. I think there was four at that time, through the beginning and... All for one price, probably 75 cents or something like that. And it turned into mayhem when all the, when the apes were winning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all the kids went wild and folded up the old cardboard boxes and threw them around like a, like a frisbee kind of thing. And the theater manager stopped that film and came out and told us that we were animals and that they were going to kick us all out and everything. But after it calmed down, we got to see the rest of the ape movies. What year would that have been? Oh, maybe 70, 71, something like that. I can't honestly remember. And then uh, r real quick on the heels of that, what's the Tora 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 story? It goes similar to that one? Yeah, same thing. You know, I, I kind of think it was, the, you know, Saturday afternoon. We used to go to a movie, you know, go down to the Capitol, go to a movie on Saturday afternoon. It was all kids. It was the matinee. And I think it didn't matter whether it was the, the Battle of Britain or Tora 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 or any other movie where you could side. You know, I'm sure that wherever we sided with the underdog is where the kids went you know they mm -hmm. cheered for the germans they cheered for the japanese they they cheer for the monster if it was a you know so and it was crazy and i, I will add to that story that many 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 years later i went by myself to a theater on a saturday afternoon in newfoundland for something to do and went and saw 
I don't remember if it was the first one, probably not, probably the second one of the Naked Gun movies. And the place was overrun with kids, and it made me just think the same thing, that they were just having fun, and mm -hmm. the manager didn't have to come out. But it was rowdy enough, and people... Which, I don't know if that ever happens in a movie theater anymore. I don't think that the exclusivity of having a theater full of kids on a Saturday afternoon is still there. I have a quote here from the film critic Pauline Kale, the noted film critic about this movie from when it came out. This was from her review, and I thought that this was uh, just a good funny quote to wrap up the Goodfellas discussion on. It's about being a guy and guys getting high on being a guy. I thought that that was an interesting distillation of what goes on in Goodfellas and how these guys interact with one another. Uh, yeah, that is pretty a pretty apt description. Uh, and then I like to do the box office trivia on this show for when the movies were released. So Goodfellas, this movie, it was released wide on September 19th, 1990, uh, little over 32 years ago do you care to guess dad where this movie placed on its opening weekend at the box office um if i could remember what other movies were playing in that year i maybe could but no i'm gonna say i'm gonna say that it didn't rate that high because uh i honestly believe it was a word of mouth movie and i think more people that saw it just like everybody who came out of that movie that saw it the first time is it funny? Uh, funny haha? -ha? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, everybody, everybody who went to it was talking about it. So I think that's how the, the buzz got started. Well, you'll be surprised <clears throat> to know that it opened in first place on its opening weekend and the movies that it opened up against. Uh, it opened up against Postcards from the Edge based on the Carrie Fisher book. That was in second place. Third place was Ghost, which would win Best Picture, be nominated for Best Picture, I think, any way. Um, and then fourth place, also opening that weekend, was Narrow Margin, directed by Peter Hyams. And then in fifth place was Funny About Love, which uh, was directed by Leonard Nimoy, starring Gene Wilder. Hmm. Remember going to see that one? <laughs> that, wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't a memorable movie-going experience for you. Wow, that's... Uh some stiff competition and also in theaters at the same time uh down in 17th place on its opening weekend as well opening up against goodfellas was miller's crossing which is the coen brothers gangster movie with uh, albert finney which yeah really didn't make a box office impact when it came out but yeah that's our discussion on goodfellas i guess dad happy to have you on the show thank oh, you I'm for doing this contribute if i could if I could, if I did. I think you did. I think this was fun and uh, happy to, as this is the holiday, New Year's, you know, edition here of Formatted to Fit. Happy to have a family member on the show. And uh, maybe we'll get you back on sometime. What what uh, what other movie do you think you'd have an interest or what? I Something think... with John Saxon. He's your favorite actor, right? Uh, next to Kurt Russell, yeah. Kurt Russell. <laughs> Who starred with Ray Liotta in, uh, I think the movie is Unlawful Entry? That's a dumb movie. That's a fun, stupid movie from a few years after Goodfellas. Well, um, I have to say in the retrospectives that aired after the passing of Ray Liotta, I would think that Goodfellas is among the top of his game. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Did he ever play any other roles that were memorable after that? 
He, I think he maybe did some TV. Well, he was in The Many Saints of Newark before he died, The Sopranos movie. But then that's also just him doing more kind of guy with a gun work. Uh, he was in Marriage Story, the Noah Baumbach mm-hmm. movie from a few years ago. And that was a very funny performance from him. But he did. He was definitely in that box for most of his career after Field of Dreams was only like a year before this. And that was kind of the last time that he did something that wasn't those guy with a gun performances. But Well, uh, you know, there's other people as well as some of the side cast in the movie that's gone on to have pretty well exclusive careers playing henchmen mm-hmm. and heavies and mobsters. I believe his name is Michael Imperioli. Mm-hmm. You know, who he's in Boardwalk on TV. He was The Sopranos. He's got another gangster show going now. He, I don't think he's ever had another role, you know, and very good at it. But yeah, I think we can wrap it up there. Thanks again for being on the maybe show. Maybe something Dad. with Gene Hackman. Something with Gene Hackman. <laughs> oh, Gene Hackman is in the movie Narrow Margin. That was what it, I forgot who was in that movie when I was doing the box office info, but that's what that one was. Anyhow. Doesn't make any sense. Look at it. There's no life to it at all. Oh, my nephew, say cheese. Good direction, Marty. Here, this one, interesting. It's far too nostalgic. What do you think? It's pretty. Composition is forced, lighting is bad, angle is off. Too literal, too violent, too metaphorical, too dark. Here, we have the protagonist, but where's the antagonist? Huh? Where's the drama? Oh. 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 Unavoidable. Got to reshoot. Yeah, Timmy, that's your Uncle Marty. How'd you like to turn five again? And that was Goodfellas with my dad, Dave Tennant, and my thanks again to him for being on the show. That's the last episode of 2022 from us here at the Formatted to Fit team. My thanks to anyone who listened this year, to anyone who was a new listener or returning from our inaugural season last year. I hope to continue to do this show and bring you high-quality programming like this conversation uh, in the basement of my house with my father in 2023, so I hope you continue to listen. If you'd like to email into the show, you can get to me at formattedtofitpod at gmail.com. You can follow on Instagram at formatted2fit to see upcoming info about episodes in the future. Please do join me in two weeks' time, dear listener, when I will be joined once again by Travis Hebert from our Kangaroo Jack episode to discuss a film from 2002 directed by Perry Andalyn Blake. That's right, it's the Dana Carvey starring vehicle, The Master of Disguise. We are starting off 2023 with a doozy, uh, a movie that some say is the best ever made. So that's going to be our start to 2023, and we hope you'll check it out. But for now, have a happy new year, and thanks for listening.